6: heavy metal, and hard rock anywhere, live from Blog Talk Radio's multi-million dollar broadcasting facilities, the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show, with your host, Mike the Big Cheese.
4: Welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem radio show. Today, it's the two-year anniversary. I got Tommy on the line with me. T, you there?
7: Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary.
4: What a beautiful song, huh? Well, we got a great show tonight, T. Gene Hoglin of Dark Angel and now Fear Factor is going to be calling in, and we got an interview we did a little while ago, Frankie Benalli from the newly Reunited Quiet, right? They weren't when we did the interview a few weeks back, but They've gotten back together, so big show tonight, a lot of new music, a lot of old music. Uh, Gene actually supposed to call in at 6 o'clock tonight, because I think they're in Australia. Oh. So uh, I'm hoping that it comes through and it happens. Uh, I confirmed it Friday, so we'll see, but while we're waiting, how about we get a little music on, get this party going, huh?
7: Get the party started, as they say.
4: All right, we'll so have a little Dark Angel, Gene's first band, we have arrived and I believe we got Gene on the line now. Gene, you there?
1: Hello, this is Gene.
4: How's it going? Hey, hey, Gene, it's Mike. How are you?
1: Hey, Mike, how are
4: you? I'm doing great. It's good to talk to
1: you. Awesome. You too, man. Hell
4: yeah. All right. So, I, well, I, I, you know, I We need like 20 shows to talk about all the bands and, and groups that you've played in. But I know the big thing right now is your new instructional DVD that you just put out.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's the latest thing. I'm hopping out there, I suppose.
4: <laughs> hey, hey, that's oh, no. okay. Uh, uh, that's,
1: that's the
4: atomic clock. So, how did we made the decide? Because actually, you're a self-taught drummer.
1: Indeed. Yeah, I totally am. How um, instructional?
4: Well,
1: it didn't start off as an instructional DVD. It was just something that I uh, I just wanted to film. A couple of hours of, of me playing and me, uh, you know, showing you how I do what I do and uh, then it, in the editing, it just kind of turned into an, you know, flat out instructional DVD, so we kind of went with that way with it, and uh, it's been out since April, and it's super awesome, it's super fun, it's called The Atomic Clock, and uh, it's... Uh, excuse me. Uh, you know, it, it's... I I just wanted to make... A DVD where um, you know anybody can watch it and, and enjoy it. Where it's uh, you know it's not just for drummers. Hopefully, you know, you, if you're a non-musician, you can you can dig it. And uh, you know, I, I hope I did that. I think I think it came out pretty cool. So uh, yeah,
4: awesome. It there There's a lot of songs on there I mean, you have some Fear Factor songs. You've got music mixed in from your whole career, so it's it's it's, it's really cool for that, especially for young drummers today. Uh, what do you see as like the biggest thing with the younger generation when it comes to learning an instrument? Because, you know, when you go to school, they want you to learn how to play in a pad, and most kids just want to get behind a set and start bashing things because it's just natural instinct. They want to be like you. But uh, what do you see is like the thing that's not going to motivate people to, to really practice becoming a good drummer?
1: Well, you know, that, that sort of upbringing was the exact same that I had. You know, when I, when I joined the band in seventh grade or whatever it was, and they... Uh, they struck me with a viola. And, you know, I was like, man, I want to play the drums. Come on. They're like, we don't even offer drums.
5: So, uh,
1: <laughs> you know, that kind of pissed me off. So, um, um, yeah, you know, the the thing to make young drummers get out there and do it is, you know, just, I don't know. I think just watching their, their favorite musicians or their favorite drummers or whoever inspires them, that's, that's what did... That's what did it to me, you know. I grew up being a Kiss fan and a Rush fan and a Tommy Aldridge fan and, and stuff like that. So those drummers really, really inspired me to get out there and, and you know start becoming a a drummer, let alone a decent drummer. So uh, you know, it's just I think the younger generation, uh, you know, if they just to see their whoever your inspiration is, you know, that makes you want to do it. I, I guess. You gotta pardon me. It's it's eight o'clock in the morning here. I'm I'm in uh, Sydney, Australia. Wow.
5: So uh, I, just, I know I, feel I just woke up to do this. <laughs> oh, that's
1: alright, man. It's you know
4: the life of a rock star. You know it's not it's not like it used to be, huh? Yeah.
1: Up at up at seven forty-five in the morning. Hell yeah.
4: I know it's rough. It's rough. I, I'm glad you took a little time. I won't keep you too long because I know it is early over there. But how's everything going on the tourist <laughs> factory? I know it started off a little rough with the bus fire, but uh, how are you making out since then? Got a new bus? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, we got a new bus the, the next day sort of thing, but uh, uh, that, was, excuse me, that was one of like about three or four instances that we had, you know, incidents that we had with the bus, you know, uh, earlier in the tour our bus driver you know in in the american leg of the tour our bus driver fell asleep and at the wheel and we went okay. into oncoming traffic and then swung back around around into into our lane but you know that was pretty hairy then less than two months later we had the bus burned down so it kind of kind of feels like there's a curse on us with buses but uh the tour's been really good. We're down here in Australia. We're uh, we're opening for Metallica on their Australian leg, so that was really cool. You know, we we played a couple of shows so far. And we've done like three shows so far. A couple in Melbourne, and then one in Sydney the night before last. And then we fly to Christchurch, New Zealand tonight, and then we uh, start flying there tomorrow, and then we finish it up with the. Uh, a show or two in Tokyo, Japan, with Metallica as well.
4: Wow. Is that your first time down in Australia?
1: No, this is about my 10th time or 12th time wow. or something like that. So, so, we've been down here a lot. Like, Strapping used to basically live down here, you know. This is our home away from home when when I was with Strapping. And Fear Factory's been here a, a million times, too. So, this is our second time here this year, as a matter of fact. So...
4: Well, that's great. And you were just talking about Strapping Young Lad. Uh, you and Devin have played together for a long time on and off on a lot of different projects. Uh, did this all come about from your time of testament?
1: I missed the last thing you said, bro. Uh, talking,
4: you were talking about Strapping Young Red and uh, I know that you've worked with Devin for a, for a long time on a lot of his projects and his other albums. And uh, did the two of you hook up at your time of testament?
1: Actually, by the time I was in Testament, um, I had already recorded the City album for uh, with Strapping. So uh, Devin and I actually we uh, we met at an Iron Maiden Fear Factory show in February of 1996, and then by by July of '96 we had recorded uh, City. And then in late July of 96, I went up to the Bay Area to do the Testament Demonic album. And, uh, yeah, so I had already had City in the can by the time I had done, uh, by the time I did Testament. Do
4: so. uh, you guys plan on working together again soon? Uh,
1: well, you never know. That would, that would always be awesome. Uh, you know, I love Dev, and we love each other, and it's awesome. But, uh, you know, you never know what the schedule You know, know. Kev's a pretty busy guy, and my schedule is just for, you know, I've been on the road for a year straight and, uh, you know, with no real time off until our last little break that we got there. So I was on the road for a year straight. So trying to plan anything is just pretty impossible.
4: I can imagine. You are a busy guy. There's no doubt about that. You've become, like, the go-to guy in the world of metal when it comes to drumming. I mean – the amount of bands you've played with and albums you're on—they all seem to go to you. So you got to be offering them something pretty good. And as a drummer, uh, it must be a challenge jumping into different situations all the time. And I'm sure it's difficult, but it also must offer you a lot of like you know benefits because you never become stagnant. That,
1: that that's very true. You know the, the the thing it offers is the thing I offer or whatever. You know um, I I like making you know, each band that I've ever played in, I think their music stands alone, you know, stands, stands on its own strength that you don't um, you don't really want your drummer... You know, I, I don't want to be the kind of drummer that it's like I, I have one style in 10 different bands, you know? I want to give each band its own style, its own approach, its own take on, on the drums. So, you know, that's why, you know, death, didn't sound like Dark Angel, and Strapping doesn't sound like Death, and Testament doesn't sound like Strapping, and, and, and so on. Just try to give each band its own individual identity on the drums. And uh, I suppose it's it's harder than you might think, but uh, that's one thing I'm pretty good at. So so I like to strive for that with, with every project that I do, try to give everybody their own identity. and, and So yeah, I'd rather have the drums sound different rather than having, you know, like, oh, well, that's obviously Gene Hoagland, because that's the only style he plays, you know, in all these different bands. You know, that, that doesn't sound too cool to me. So, so just try to give each band its own individual identity, really.
4: Yeah, and you do a fine job on that. And I, I know the big question everybody asks you probably over and over again is Dark Angel. Any chance of anything ever happening with that again in the future is a kind of just old news now.
1: Well that's you know that that's that's another thing hey, you never know, but i would I would think that the uh just the logistics of everything really point to it not ever happening uh, you know there's just a bunch of uh there's a bunch of logistics involved that would make it just not even possible so uh we have to really carve through a bunch of stuff uh, but yeah. I would say probably not you know i i'm I'm okay with that uh because, uh, you know, it, uh, I've just always had a feeling, you know, with all these reunions that go on and all of these bands that went away for so many years and now they're back. Um, that's awesome for a lot of bands, but that's, I don't know, it's never been quite for me. I've always liked to look forward in in music rather than, uh, you know, stepping 20 years in the past. So I, 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 I'm i always more down for maybe making new stuff and trying to create some other new level of music. So, uh, but, you know, hey, you never know.
4: Yeah, you can never say never in this business. And, you know, you don't rest on your laurels, which is the one thing that I always admired about you in your career. You just keep moving on. And out of all the projects you've played all the bands, was there any of them that you just, like, regretted it? After, you know, after you did it, you said, why the hell did I you know, agree to play with that or on that album or with that tour?
1: Huh. That's a good question. I can't think of any. Um, and that's one thing I've always tried... To 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 have in my career is not have that really embarrassing moment, like oh my god, <laughs> don't pay attention to that man. That's that we used to wear spandex, you know. <laughs> like that. But, uh, no, I, I I pretty much dug everything that I did. So, uh, you know, I just always, I always, I've always felt that, you know, hey, you gotta look yourself in the mirror in the morning. So. Don't do anything embarrassing, you know. Don't take that gig with that really horrible band just because it pays well, but you can't stand the music. Uh, you know, it feels really fake to you. Um, you know, I've always tried to shy away from that sort of thing, so I could look back on my career and well, go, hey man, thumbs up all the way you know, all the way around. So um, so yeah, I can't think of anything that's super embarrassing, you know.
4: Well, that's a good thing, and I I know that Dan Nile was trying to court you for a while to get you in there, but you just, uh, you didn't go for it. I guess it just didn't feel right for you at the time, or at all.
1: Um, actually, did you get that off the Wikipedia page?
4: No, I don't even know how to use a damn computer. That's the funny thing, because this is a computer Uh, show.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay, awesome. I did read that in
4: another interview somewhere, in a written interview.
1: I, I, oh, I sure don't know if I remember that, but, uh, yeah, just like I was, I've been told that, hey, Dibu Borgir asked you to play for him, too, and at that time, they didn't, you know. Um, I don't remember ever getting asked by Niall to play for him, but I tell you, that's, you know, Niall is a really wicked mayor. They're awesome. They're killer, uh, and George Kalias is amazing. So, I mean, he fits them so well that, uh, you know, it, but I, I got to tell you, that kind of music doesn't sound super enjoyable for me to play, it's awesome to watch. It's awesome to see somebody freaking out and going nuts behind the kit. But uh, uh, I think there's there's a limit to my freak out. So uh, you know, I, I, I see George playing. And it looks like he's about to die on stage, and I'm like, man, that just doesn't look like fun. You know, don't get me wrong, they're a great band, but just yeah. actually for me to be in there playing, for them, man, it would be like, whoa. I I think I'd like to shoot myself in the head.
4: So yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I think that's where I read it from. I think George did an interview with a magazine, and they kept asking him about that. And I think that's where I saw it from. It wasn't something that you uh, had spoken about in an interview. It was something with George and somebody else from Nile. That's where I caught that from. Oh, phone.
1: okay.
4: I think it was Great. on a blabber map somewhere at one time. I have read that, and that's just one of those things that,
1: hey, man, well, I don't remember that happening, but that's what people want <laughs> to say. <laughs> yeah, there's more
4: rumors than truth out there. You know that.
1: Indeed
4: how do you feel about the whole business end of the music today does it ever drag you down i mean i know all bands go through it especially like when you're younger like with dark angel and as you moved along you get smarter about it and you understand it more but it was did you ever just want to throw in the towel due to the the business end of it
1: um well that's one thing i've always just tried to keep plugging at and i've always tried to inform myself you know like back when Back when we were doing Dark Angel, and yeah, we were a bunch of young kids signing contracts left and right that were, you know, obviously no good for a, a 17-year-old kid or however old I was when we signed our first contract, 18 or something. Um, you know, I've I, I just always tried to learn from every mistake I've made, and being a young, dumb kid and signing signing contracts and being involved in the biz and getting, getting that knife in your back I've always tried to learn from that, and and um, you know. So now I can read a contract pretty well. I don't have to take it to a lawyer. I don't, you know, because most contracts are actually easier to read than than you'd expect. But um, you know, there there's there's lots of parts of the business where you know it, it does get kind of disheartening. Like for instance, um, I went for the first. 20 years of my career, yeah, pretty much 20 years where I, I didn't make any money, you know, any substantial money. You know, you come home with a few you, – you pay your rent for a month or so after some tours, not all of them. I've come home from many tours with no way to pay the rent, just trying to figure out, well, hell, boy, that just sucked. We just spent three months on the road and I got nothing to show for it. But, oh, boy, we sure did rock, didn't we, you know? And yeah. there are many times that it's like, man, people really do not understand that this, you know, it's the 1% of one percentile that make any money at this. And these days I'm doing all right. You know, I some decent point, but, uh, you know, I went for 20 years without making any cash and still plugging away at it. You know, that, that, that didn't stop me. And um, i I've just, I've had a very Spartan life, you know, there's, I've never been an owner of much stuff, because it's always, my whole life has been like, well, don't own so much that you just can't leave something behind, you know, Um, you know, some physical item like a giant TV or an entertainment system or something like that, you know, I just, I've never bought that sort of thing, so I've I've been okay, you know, to to lead that Spartan life, but this business will will carve a chunk out of you if you allow it. Absolutely.
4: Yeah, you have to do it for the love of the music, because really, in the end, that's all you have. And uh, you've given us such great music over the years. I can't thank you enough for that. And uh, Gene, I got Tommy on the line. If you know, I'm going to put him on. Tommy, are you there?
5: Hey, how
7: you doing, Mike? How you doing, Gene?
1: Hey, Tom, how are you? Ah,
7: uh, thank thanks for your uh, your dedication to the um, genre of heavy metal and hard rock. Um, Throughout the years You mentioned uh, I know. I, I, I heard, uh, I'm sorry When you were talking about drumming You know you were self taught And you just wanted to put the DVD out As so, so people can appreciate the way you approach drums You mentioned Kiss and Rush Now a lot of people A lot of drummers especially Would never say that Well I don't know First I should ask you Was Peter Chris, and Neil Peart one of your, you know, um, influences? Or two of your influences? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, both but of those. That's the second part of my question. Influences. Definitely. Because a lot of drummers tend to say, well, you know, Peter Chris is this, he's, you know, and Neil Peart is that. And it's totally opposite, which I like as a musician myself, a guitar player, you appreciate, like, the best in, you know, or, or the best parts of, of a, certain, uh, a certain drummer. Like, Peter Chris is good at what he does, as is Neil Peart, you know, obviously, at what he does, you know, so I was, I really admire that from, uh, you know, from a drummer.
1: Right on, bro, cool, man. Yeah, I thought, you know, when I was growing up, when I was 10 years old, I thought Peter Pierce was the coolest thing ever. As I got a little bit older, I realized that, hey, man, there's other drummers out there that are that are totally to my taste as well. Um but looking back at Peter Chris, you know the guy was a killer. He was still a killer drummer, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Just like Gene Simmons on the Dress to Kill* record, is an amazing bassist. Yeah. You know, I don't know well. if that's him playing bass on Dress to Kill*, but the bass <laughs> on Dress to Kill* are killer. Yeah. Uh, that is as what it Neil Peart, out.
7: I'm
1: sorry. Awesome. No. All good. Um, you know, and Neil Peart. When I was growing up, he was, you know, he was the best drummer around, and. So I just tried to emulate the best drummer around and you know, I could play a P- i can air drum a Peter Chris I mean a, a Neil Peart song like nobody's business, you know. I can look like I'm playing it exactly alike, you know. But uh, you know, as i got older I you know and Neil Peart is not quite the same drummer that he was back in the day. I saw some I saw uh I guess it was on the the, the Beyond the Light and Stage documentary that got put out a couple of months back. Yeah, um, when he started taking lessons, because uh, I think he's a self-taught drummer pretty much. When he started taking lessons, his style changed so much. And I've just been kind of wondering, like, what happened to the Neil Peart that you know I grew up listening to? Because that guy playing for Rush now sure doesn't play like Neil Peart. Um, and sure enough, you know, he started taking lessons, and that kind of changed his style a lot. And for me not in an awesome way you know it's like wow he just, he's not really yeah. got as you know no offense to the guy but he got a little sterile russia's music is, is not quite as roaring rip roaring as it was you know 20 years ago exactly. or whatever but that's uh true. 30 years ago, i guess but uh that's yeah just changed his style a whole lot but that's definitely, cool
7: definitely that's a great great observation because uh Sometimes too much education is no good.
1: <laughs> I agree, as I try to sell people an instructional DVD.
5: <laughs> no, no,
7: no. no, no but I, I, uh, go
4: ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mikey. No, sir. I know exactly what you're saying. About Gene Simmons before, and he said in an interview once that he would rather hear a bass player just play one pound the E chord than like all these notes mixed together because it's more intense. And that's sort of what you're trying to say too. The, where it's at.
1: Well, yeah, totally. You know, I, I definitely appreciate the simpler style of bass playing as well as a well-done Getty Lee type bass line. You know, right. um, you know, I, I love the really solid, simple, locked-in-the-pocket bass. Uh, but hey, you know, flying around like Steve DiGiorgio, I love his style too. You know, I get to I get to have played with the best of both worlds. You know, Myron Stroud, Steve DiGiorgio two amazing bassists and two completely different approaches to the bass, absolutely.
7: And you feel like when you play with a different type of bass player, it makes you play differently also?
5: Uh
1: oh yeah. Yeah, totally. And what's what's funny is I I usually I like live, for instance, when I'm playing in a one of the super metal bands that I play for, whichever one it is, I usually only have guitar in my uh, in my monitors. Um, I never have bass, but uh, you know, because it's just so metal, and just bass just kind of clutters up the the, the the tone that you're getting off your monitors. So it's funny, you know. I'm am a drummer. I'm a rhythm part of a rhythm section. Yet I never play with the rhythm section. You know, I've always got the guitar. I play I play so much guitar-driven music that it's like, well, you know, hey, I gotta play with the guitar in my monitors. So ah, whatever that means, whatever.
4: That sounds good to me, Gene. I don't want to keep you any longer. I appreciate you calling, but before I let you go, where can everybody go to find the DVD, The at Atomic Clock?
1: Well, for uh, those listeners in in the United States and the rest of the world, it can be found at hoaglandindustries.com. dot com. And uh, yeah, you know that's it's we're real quick about uh, you know getting it out to you. Um, you know, we definitely have the mail system down at Copeland Industries. You know, we, we when you order it, it usually goes out the next day, you know, if if not the same day. So there are people that order it from, uh, from Europe, and they're like, holy moly, I just ordered this six days ago, and I got it already. You know, I thought it was going to be three to four weeks for delivery, but, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty honest over there. For those listeners who are listening from Canada – uh, you can find it at reversedrecords.com or it's also going to be available in Canada at uh a number of HMV stores which is pretty much their uh Virgin Megastore or their Tower Records yeah. or whatever you know it's, it's it's they still they still have CD stores up there in Canada so it's it's a big deal and uh <laughs> yeah so, yeah, com or uh, ReverseRecords.com in Canada. I mean, that's, that's the place to get it. That and sounds it great, Gene. Really thank well you very really much, man. Yeah, awesome, brother. Appreciate
4: it. That, thank you. And besides that, they can hit you on the latest Safety Mechanized record, which is still out there, and they should pick that up on top of the DVD. Excellent.
3: That's right.
4: All right, Gene. Thank you very much. I want you to know, go get some sleep. I know you probably got a warm oh, night. I will, man. All right, everybody, Thank you very much. Take
7: uh, care. Take brother. Take it easy.
4: There keep it heavy. Keep it heavy. There you yeah. go. Gene Hodlin, the atomic clock, the human drumming machine. Uh, the phone kept cutting in and out on me. I was having a very hard time with the cell phone, so uh, oh, okay. that's why I didn't want to keep it going any longer, because I don't know if uh, anybody else is hearing it that way, but uh, that's a long-distance phone call. Yeah, God bless
5: him.
4: Hey, you know, that's, that's really long-distance. <laughs> but... Well, I want to thank Gene for calling in and kicking off our two-year anniversary show. Uh, I'm using the headset this week that I hooked up to the USB.
5: Really? Sounds good.
4: Yeah, so it's hard to use because I can't hear myself like I do with the other microphone set because I can hear myself talking.
5: What are you using? uh, No, I'm
4: just using the headset and a separate mic, so uh, I can't hear myself, uh, you know, through the headset, but uh, you got to get used to it because I'm used to the old way of doing it. Yeah, Yeah, but
7: there was a delay delay between us and him, so it um, you know so it was hard. uh, I know. Wait a couple seconds, you know, to let him listen to you know what you had to say. I know,
4: I know. He's calling. I I didn't realize that. I forget that he's calling halfway across the country. You know. Well,
5: it's not your fault. It sounded great. And the cell phone is,
4: is. it says my cell phone number's from California, but he's calling from over there. But that was good to talk to him. So uh, how about we get some more music on right now?
5: Sounds good, man.
4: All right. Here's a band called Skullhammer out of Massachusetts. Some good friends of the show. Uh, I know you ran into the drummer last weekend. He does play with Ravage besides Skullhammer. It's the new drummer, and he does play with both bands. So you were right about that. They got a brand new record out. It's totally kick ass called Pain It in Blood. Uh, the artwork is amazing, man. It's just I don't know who did it. He uh, if you go to the website to have the artist's name down. I should have wrote it down because he did a fantastic job. He's done a lot of albums and uh, you guys work really hard on this. Go and pick it up. Just head over to the Skullhammer website on MySpace and they got them on site. And you can find them on the, my friends list on MySpace if people still use that. And I'm gonna get the first song off the album mars called Soldier of Misfortune. hammer that's off the brand new record pain in blood soldier of misfortune. if you don't have the record yet, you have to go and get it.
5: It's like Tommy, to, it's like listening to the old stuff, man.
4: Uh, yeah, well you know, Steve's been around since the eighties uh, he's uh, played in a lot of bands over the years, and he's finally got this thing going with skullhammer, and I uh, wish him the best of luck. They were like one of the first bands they interviewed on the show uh, about two years ago
5: wow. so
4: yeah, Steve's going to come back on again. Uh, I know they're doing a couple of shows. They played in New York like two weeks ago. he never told me. Yeah. And by the time I found out, the show was over, but he uh, said they're going to be in New Jersey. I think they're going out on a tour, I think, next week, if, I, if I'm right, and uh, they're going to be in New Jersey, so we'll check them out over there. That'll be cool. Yeah, you told me they're playing in New York, too. they are playing up in Cortland. That's a long life for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, they're up there with the the boys from the Rods and water up in that territory. Right. All right, so, let me see. You know what? Let me get the Sunday Spotlight out of the way. And Because uh, I know those guys are listening and they're over in an Ireland, and it's getting a little late over there, so I don't want to keep them up too long. It's a band called Tastero. Killer band. I mean, a three-piece band with an amazingly big sound. Uh, and the matter of fact, if you go to their website, Consequences of Thoughts, which is their record, you can download the whole record for free. Not many bands do that and give their fans wow. Wow. free music. right How do you, Pretty how you,
5: spell, how you spell that?
4: C-A-S-T-E-R-O, and I'll have a whole review of it up on... The Heavy Metal Mayhem Block Spot, you know. Matter of fact, it's probably up there right now, but uh, after the show, usually everything posts, so. And all the links are on my page to the band. Killer Band, they've appeared on a couple of different uh, compilations over the year. And uh, I think this is a good record, a great band, a very modern metal band, but they got their roots in the old school, you know what I mean? Yeah. So here's a song called Smokes of Doom. That was Castero with Smokes of Doom. Like I said, you can download the album from the band at the website for free and up at the block spot. I got a little review of those guys. Uh, the Godfather of Doom, Joe Hassel's then it would be proud. What do you think, Tommy?
7: Yeah, I think so. You're right. <laughs> right?
4: Uh, Very Doom metal band, heavily Sabbath influence, but it's really modern in the same sense, and I enjoy those guys. So yeah, go and check them out, Castero.
7: The vocals are uh, a little bit like a, like a Danzig, Sam Hain, Yeah. Like, you know. Doomy, Those are a lot of their
4: influences, so really good band, and how can you turn down a free record anywhere these days, right?
7: <laughs> Definitely, I mean, what the hell?
4: I like that. Well, reality, you already interviewed Gene I'm
7: sorry, buddy. Like, I didn't mean to step by you. Speaking of free records, um, I really appreciate the fellas from um, Addicted to Pain giving me that CD. The EP CDs is really good. I can't can't take it out of my stereo.
4: Um, well, you know what? We did that interview last week with Addicted to Pain. Uh, we interviewed the band live. It was the first time we interviewed a band like in person wise. And I tell you, we used that, uh, the phone to do it with that service. It yeah, came out pretty good. I was surprised.
5: I forgot to ask you about that. And I'm glad.
4: Yeah, I, I wanted to email you that night, but I forgot. And then I, I said, I'll do it the next day. And I still got the email saved. But I'll tell you tonight because I got you in person. But it came out pretty good. The only thing is the next time, like you came out nice and the band came out well, but I was too far away from where I was sitting. Yeah. So my voice was a little low, so but I, I boosted it up with, like, you know, some audio editing program. Oh, okay. So as a tool, but When we do something like that, the next time, we got, we got to get a little closer or talk louder. Yeah, yeah. But I remember, they came out great because it was right near them, you know? Well, that's the main and, you was, and you were sitting higher up, so kind of projected.
7: Oh, okay. Maybe that's what it was because I had that stool, right?
4: Yeah, you had the big chair. You had the big yeah. boy chair, you know? I was in the little chair.
5: Drum ri- the drum, drum, the right.
4: drum riser chair. That's but okay. it didn't come out yeah. bad. Yeah, and I fixed it up. The only thing that's out is like when we all talk together, it gets a little muffled. But it's like that anyway. No matter what, how we would have recorded it, it would have came out that way. But sure. I
5: mean, for using, using that device, it worked out Yeah, not bad.
4: Not bad at all. And uh, I'm going to get a little mic that I can plug into it, just you know, so oh, we can move it around.
5: Yeah, right
4: yeah. That's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, not bad, right? But it came out good. And we'll have that Addicted to Pain interview on... Uh, the week after next next week. We have Craig Ruber from Elf and Rainbow, and uh, his new band Eden, which features uh, David Shankel on guitar, Scott Columbus on uh, drums. Wow! Uh, yeah, two thirds of uh, men in there, you know. Uh, well, there are,
7: from the up, the up, uh, what do you call it area, right?
4: Uh, from, yeah. Like
7: Upstate New York area. I mean,
4: cause, cause sure. right. He's actually in Florida now, Craig, but uh, the rest of the guys are from New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, who else is on next week? Uh, oh, Michael Kiska, the original singer from Halloween. Uh, He's got a new uh, project out right now called Kiss Somerville. So uh, we've got a busy show next week. And uh, talking about shows, last week I did the Made in Brooklyn show.
5: Wow, I went over
4: really big. Let me tell you, there's a lot of life in Brooklyn.
5: Wow, that's great.
4: I can't believe it. They're better than any other metal man they have done.
6: Ooh, nice, nice. Yeah, people, you uh, you know,
4: they're great. I mean, people uh, love Brooklyn and Brooklyn metal bands. And uh, we finally got to feature Tempest again. We haven't played them since the New York show.
5: Thank
1: you, Your band.
4: And I, you know, I mentioned on there if you haven't heard Tommy talk about Tempest, whatever interview we've ever done.
5: to
4: get the head band tonight. I gotta listen to that. I'm sorry.
7: Yeah, yeah it
4: was funny. Plus, I went to the Scrapper's website and I posted the show on there, and I can't tell you how many people came to came to the show and listened to it through their website.
7: Oh, that's great! Great idea. See,
5: promotion, yeah. man.
4: Brooklyn people, Brooklyn show. And on top of that, I got a couple of emails. One of them was from the Big Gothic Knights from Brooklyn, who I played at oh, the end. Okay. They said, thank you for playing uh, the band. We appreciate it. I said, hey, come on the show, you know. I'd love to have you guys on. So I sent them a couple of dates, and hopefully they'll pick one out.
7: Excellent, man.
4: Yeah, I felt that because I wanted to play Machine, and I wanted to play Devil's Island, and there's another band called Toxima. Uh-huh. And uh, I forgot to change the show from like 45 minutes to an hour because it's only 45 on the matinee. Uh-huh. So, you know, you can run over, it's no big deal, because most people listen to the podcast anyway. Right. But I got cut off during the Gothic Night song. I just got cut off, and I couldn't sign back in, so I couldn't get the rest of the songs on. But I'm going to mix them in over the next week or so. Oh, all
5: right.
4: That sounds pretty good, huh? So what's happening in the world of metal? Anything good this week?
7: Uh, uh, okay. Cool.
4: Not too much. I know Ross the Boss released the album artwork for uh, Halesome. I like the name of the album alone. Yeah, it's a
7: cool, cool, album. cool album name. Yeah the 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 artwork is nice very much uh, similar to the last one. I'm yeah. the same artist. I I don't catch I didn't catch the name. But um yeah, it's real cool. I like it. And um he played uh two uh he played uh Ross the Boss played this uh weekend uh last weekend I should say Thunderfest uh at the um, Bowery Electric, uh on uh the Bowery in uh, Manhattan. Sunday into Monday night, I should say, a bunch of new, a bunch of, uh, a mixture of old and new bands, and uh, Ross was a headliner, and uh, they played uh, a little bit of Man of War, a little bit of their own, obviously the RTB band, but uh, they played two new tunes off the uh, new new CD, Um, one was an instrumental, God Glorious, I believe, and um, I forgot the name of the other tune, but uh, very good stuff. And, uh, you will be pleased if you like the last album, you know, like all the first six albums of War, six albums of Man of War, you're going to love this stuff.
4: Uh, uh, I can't imagine. I can't wait. You know, we, you know we're big fans of Ross, the boss and Man of War and all that music. So I'm uh, looking forward to it. I think Alex is on the line, but, uh, uh Ryan also has the same Eric because He uses a Google voice. So I don't want to connect it, and if it's not Alex and it's Ryan, because I'm trying to go redneck free today. So uh, I'll wait till I play the song. I <laughs> check to see if it's Alex, and we'll put him on. Okay. And we'll do, we'll do that. But I uh, think we got another song on right now. We got our interview with Frankie Banali coming up in a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, about another fifteen minutes or so. Choir uh, Quiet right is in the news this week also. They just got back together with a new singer. Wow. Uh, Chuck Wright back on bass, one of the original members of the band. And uh, Alex Grassi, I saw play with the motor, a really good guitar player. I can't remember the name of the new thing. I'm gonna look that up to find out for sure. Uh, but uh, they're gonna to try to do it again. And uh, he raised enough money for the documentary, and we'll talk all about that in the interview. You he can hear everything that went on. But how about we do a little new Death Angel right now? All right. All right. The band put out a brand new record, Relentless Retribution. These guys were actually written in the book, but I'm gonna play to them anyway because it was their manager's fault, not the band's fault. So, uh, off the new record is River of Rapture. Thank you. All right, that was Emmy Strutt. That was that was ripped from vinyl. It was kind of low, but uh, couldn't really tell. You know, some of the vinyl riffs uh, they get very tinny, like when you play them, Tommy.
5: Yeah, uh huh. So I kept
4: it a little lower just to be on the safe side, you know. But that's the called Emmy Strutt.
6: Oh, very. Cool. Uh, that was
4: Eyes of the Night, and before that we had Brand New Death Angel. What do you think of the Death Angel?
6: Wow,
7: that was good stuff.
4: Yeah. Yeah, pretty intense. It sounds like crap coming through these headsets. I'm gonna switch back over to something else. Mike, you there? Uh, yeah, how are you doing, Alex? I know I had you connected. What's going on?
8: Good, how are you? Sorry, I had to get away from the computer because I have um, the stream on at the same time, so I didn't want to get... Through.
4: Oh, yeah, I hear you. No problem, no problem, no problem. We're moving along here, one hour in. We interviewed Gene Hoglin from Fear Factor earlier in the show, and uh, we've got an interview with Frankie Pinelli coming up in Not a few minutes. Great. Very good. He's calling it from Australia, so it's 8 o'clock in the morning. You had to call her earlier, here, because uh, he had something to do out there. They're actually on tour, opening up for Metallica so, right so, now.
8: So, so what is it like already tomorrow there? It's tomorrow. Yeah, it's eight o'clock
4: uh, Monday morning in Australia, and uh, getting Should ready. Ask, I thought yep. you said. Uh,
8: Should I ask him. Going I last night. <laughs> How are you doing, Tommy? <laughs> How are you doing, Tommy? How are you doing, brother? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to I was gonna call before, but I uh, didn't know anything about the guy, so I didn't want to just call in. That didn't know what the That's
4: okay. G- Gene's been around a long time, original drama for Dark... Not the original drama, but the drummer from the classic oh, version of Dark nice. Angel. Yeah, and I, he's played a strapping on Lad, Testament. He actually did back the vocals on Slayer's first record. Uh, he was a roadie for the band back then on Tech. Oh, wow. Check
5: and, that out.
4: Yeah. That. Oh, yeah, he's played in, uh, I can't, I can't even name the amount the bands he's played in. He, he's talk about a journeyman drummer. He, he's like the Tommy Aldridge of our generation, you know? Yeah, and he's
5: a very so, good. Coach,
8: so, I so, think. so, so what's he, so, so you're giving away swag tonight to people?
4: Yeah, what do you want? You called then. you want something?
8: Oh, no, you. I call anyway, no matter what, so you don't have to, oh, you've already given, you, you've already given me enough commos and shit, so I don't need anything.
4: I'll mail you, you out a pack of stuff. Anybody calls We've got CDs, autograph posters, buttons, pins, T-shirts from all the bands that have been on the show over yeah, the years. I, I don't I,
8: know. I, I've taken enough shit from you already. Christ, I, I, I've downloaded half of your blog site already.
6: That's okay. That's and what it's the there that so for. That's That's everybody yeah. to download.
8: <laughs> I made shows yeah. that. Yeah.
4: That's, that's right.
8: I downloaded some demo the other day by a band called uh Saintly Center or something like
5: that.
4: They were a great band out of New York. That's all they put out was that demo. I think there was one other demo actually, but they were a really good power metal band. I, I enjoy them enough. Not even mention. I wish I had something uploaded by them. I would have gotten it on. But yeah, I also yeah, do downloaded
8: that uh, early Vixen demo, the Marty Friedman Vixen.
4: Marty Friedman, that was a great tape. But his band Aloha came out right after that. They were another good band. Right. But the yeah. Leone on vocals. So hey, there's always something every week.
8: Mount Leone on oh, baby cool. vocals. Oh great. Leone. <laughs> oh, I went Lebeleone. back to two thousand eight and looked for the the tapes you had up there, a lot of good stuff.
4: Yeah. yeah there's only a few because I didn't do it on a regular basis back then, not like every week like now, but I uh, there's a few good ones from on, uh from that year on, yeah.
7: Mike is yeah, the Bob Walters of rock music
4: as far as uh, you're kidding. Alright, how about we right. do our demolition segment because I want to get the interview with Frankie Banali going.
8: All right, I said I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang up now. Good
4: talking to you guys. All right, Alex. Thank All you right, very I'll much, buddy. It. I'll talk to you soon.
8: Take
5: care, All
4: right, All right. All right. This is our demolition segment demo. You can download it. It's up for download right now on the Heavy Metal Mayhem blog spot. The link wow. is right here. I'll get it right now. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he is. We'll have the show
5: ready by <laughs> eight o'clock tonight. <laughs> yeah, uh, this,
4: what called, uh, this is they called. This is video called Machine Head, featured Rob Flynn. Uh, I started out for Ben he was a lot of those great uh, San Francisco thrash fans back in the 80s. Uh-huh. I,
5: saw,
4: I don't know if you were there, but I saw them open up for Heaven and Hell uh, a couple of years ago uh, with Motorhead. They were the open and out. They were really good. And this is their first demo tape. It's what up for download that? right now. That was yeah, at pretty the PNC? Stuff I saw them at, uh, yeah, the PNC Bank Law Center. Right, right.
7: Yeah, I didn't go to that. Yeah, job. I went by myself. Yeah, you were antisocial back then.
4: No, 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 you guys went to go see them at, uh, see them,
7: at um, Radio you them at Radio
4: City Music Hall, right. and I was over in Italy with my family that week on vacation, right. I took the kids over to York, so uh, it was either Heaven and Hell or York, now that I think about it, I'd rather see Heaven and Hell, it was a lot cheaper, but never mind, <laughs> but I, I caught them at the PNC, I went by myself, you guys didn't want to go, right. and I, they sounded powerful, man, a really good band, so here's the first demo, download it, keep it, enjoy it, it's so called The Nation on Fire.
5: 对 yeah.
4: There you go. Yeah, there was a reason why I put that demo up there today. I just wish I could remember why. Uh, I don't remember. It was Machine Head's first demo. Oh, uh, um, Rob Flynn, who, uh, is a guitar player, singer in the band, he came from Forbidden Evil, which changed name to Forbidden. We had Matt Camacho on a while back. and uh, um, Gene Hodgson actually was uh, going to take over the drumming for uh, Forbidden when they reunited right. a little while back. That's why I forgot I put that on. And uh, Rob Flynn, who's a uh, guitar player and vocals from Machine Ed, he played in Violence, Forbidden Evil. Uh, Phil Demmel, who's also in the band, also played in Violence. He plays in Dublin Death Patrol
5: right.
4: with uh, Chuck okay. Billy from Testament. A lot of uh, a lot of guys in that band are from classic 80s San Francisco thrash metal bands. So it's up to download the blog spot right now and you know, go grab yourself a copy of it.
7: No problem. We're going right now.
4: All right. How about I do a little quiet ride? We're going to our interview with Frankie Benelli right after that. All right. Cool. All right, here you go, a little condition critical.
3: Phenomenal! How you doing, Mike?
4: I'm doing very good, very good. I'm sorry to get you up so early today. I, I know uh, you're a couple hours behind in California.
3: Actually, I get up. Uh, I get up fairly early anyway because a lot of my calls are back east, um, and so I usually try to get up in time to catch uh, uh, everybody in New York. Uh, the, the first bothersome call is usually from me, so but it's no big okay. deal. Okay,
4: I don't feel so bad. Then uh, back in the '80s, you never would have thought a rock star would be up this early in the morning. Usually, just getting to bed at this time, huh?
3: Well, you know the thing is that for the last uh, half of the band's history for the last thirteen years, I managed the band, so getting up uh, early in the morning and going to bed late and not for the reasons that everybody uh, associates with musicians <laughs> is has uh, been a part of my life for a long time
4: yeah, that's true, and you did you did manage the band towards the end that's like you know that's like doing double duty, so it was a lot of work involved in that also
3: well the the fascinating part about it is that the the hour hour and a half on stage was always fun, and then the rest of the time. And in, in uh, under the banner of doing my job for Quiet Riot, I invariably made enemies <laughs> because you're the manager and the artist, so they they you know they can't separate uh, one from the other.
4: That's true. That is difficult. And, uh, I mean, there's like a the million things that I want to talk to you about, but right now I think one of the biggest things you're working on is putting this whole Quiet Riot documentary together.
3: Correct. Yeah, that's, uh, that's my main focus uh, at this point in time.
4: Yeah, is it is it hard going back and look? I mean, you're talking close to 30 years uh, of quiet riot, probably more than that if you go back very early on, to try mm-hmm. to put, to come up with enough stuff that's been recorded from the early days on.
3: Well, you know how how this whole thing came about is after um, after Kevin Dubrow passed away in 2007. Uh, you know that was uh, that was a huge loss for me. I mean, obviously it was a huge loss uh, within uh, within the, everything that was Choir Riot, but it was uh, it was a huge loss for me personally because I had met Kevin in 1979, uh, and we started working together in March of 1980. Um, so when it comes to to the footage that I have, you know, I um, you know the the first year after Kevin passed away, I did pretty much nothing. I I didn't want to look at my drums. I didn't want to pick up a pair of sticks. It was just incredible um, sadness and and depression uh, and mourning. Um, and you know that uh, a, a large aspect of that still continues today, except that you know I have now been uh, for whatever reason forced or reality have to have. Uh, accepted um the loss um so it's made it possible for me on the one hand to actually start playing again i've been doing sessions and playing around town and things like that Uh, but it also gave me the opportunity to go through my archives because even before i started managing quiet riot um, i started collecting things and the earliest piece of footage um, that i have and i have hundreds of hours of footage but the earliest piece is not a choir ride, but it's related in that it was a show that I did in 1980 with a group called Monarch, but Kevin was in the audience, and that's even though we had met, that was the first time he had actually seen me play. And that's the night that we talked about getting together and, uh, and playing in a band together, which happened two months later in March. Um, so that's the earliest piece of footage, but the footage spans from 1980. Some professionally shot footage uh, in 2007, just a few months before Kevin passed away, and everything in between. And to give you just a a small slice of how much documentation I have on video, I have a show from 1982 um, where the lineup, it was the band with Dubrow, which was the interim band between the first version of Choir Riot and the Metal Health Choir Riot. And the band was uh, uh, Kevin and myself with Chuck Wright on bass. And newly, uh, joined Carlos Cavazzo, was, I think, his second gig he had ever done with us. But this footage was filmed before we were even in the studio recording the, um what became the mental health record. Uh, but then everything in between, uh, year after year, I've got footage of us in the studio recording the condition critical record and the QR3 record, uh, the terrified record. It just goes on and on and on. And it's not just... That kind of footage, but it's backstage footage and dressing room footage and vacation footage, and an awful lot of music, but uh, an equal amount of comedy. So there's uh, there's a lot there.
4: That's uh, I mean it's got to be a daunting task, just like trying to, to go through that all and and pick out enough you know the right things. I mean, is the documentary going to be like a watch and all type thing, is it just going to show the history of Quiet Riot? Is it going to be more of a tribute to Kevin and and that thing?
3: Well, I think, I think the, the, the best tribute um, to Kevin would, would be not to not to just make it about Kevin, but if you make it about the band choir riot, then you make it about Kevin because obviously you know he was he was a focal point of the band. Um, my purpose in this is, you know, everybody, everybody has seen, uh, the public quiet riot, um, and, and actually as far as video footage is concerned, any real video footage other than, than the official videos that we shot, there really is very little, uh, material out there. There's certainly almost no material of, of the nature that I have, um, the backstage and, and all that. Um, the purpose of it is to, to show not just the, the known side of quiet riot, but is to show a lot of the personalities of all the members in Quiet Riot, obviously Kevin included, because uh, the, the, the man was a great singer, but he was also one of the funniest individuals I've ever, uh, I've ever known in my entire life. Uh, but the story of Quiet Riot is it's not just the, the four members that were uh, in the so-called mental health lineup, because there were lineups before that um, in Dubrow. And then there's certainly many, many uh, membership changes over the years. So it's a much broader story. But again, people are going to see sides of Kevin that they never really knew existed, because all they knew it existed was either uh, through what he said or how big the press made some of the things he said, good, bad, or indifferent.
4: That that's true. Kevin said a lot, of, a lot of things over the years. He was like a lightning rod at one time. But uh, the man
3: was outspoken. The man was outspoken is and out. honest. Yeah, and honest to a fault.
4: And sometimes people don't want to hear the truth and, or what he has to say. And that was, it was a shame of it all because I remember as a kid, I met you guys, I think it was 1982 or 1983, you guys played at Brooklyn, uh, LeMores. Like yeah, 1980... yeah, yeah, that was
3: 1980. Yeah, it was 1983.
4: We had Billy Sheenan opened up for you guys in town. I met all you guys outside before you came in, and he, Kevin just came out of that car like a rock star. So the time he stepped out of that car to the time he went into the club. And it was just well, amazing, like to see you know, to see how he carried himself, you know, in front of everybody. It was incredible.
3: Well, that's the thing. The thing about Kevin is, you know, um, the one of the things he wanted to be more than anything, <clears throat> excuse me, in life, was to be a rock star. To be a rock star, like a lot of his heroes, and, uh, and in that he definitely achieved that. I mean, he was he was a rock star in every sense of the word. Um, I, I remember the uh, I remember the Lemoore's uh, show distinctly because we had a blast and we and we went out there. You know, we said, well, we're at Lemoore's, but we're going to treat it like Madison Square Garden, which we did. And yeah. and the payoff is when we got out when we got out to our tour bus somebody had slashed the tires.
4: <laughs> oh, oh God! And you know and you know, and you know oh, what oh,
3: it much. wouldn't be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Lemoors, it wouldn't be Brooklyn <laughs> it wouldn't be New York you know I mean we actually laughed at it we said this is great.
4: Oh man, you know you're making an impact that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: it it was uh it was hysterical and we just went to a diner and ate while it got fixed so you know what, what did we care you know
4: yeah yeah well you know back then in the in, in the 80s here in New York Lamar's was probably like the biggest club I mean every band that came came around us like played there I mean every band it was like you know, like the starting ground for everybody till they could either hit it big or just fade away and fortunately you guys kept going on after that and you, you've you been in music for, for so long even long before choir Riot, Coventry and Ginger and then Monarch, oh, and yeah. all those bands, and, and you've been around for a long time doing it, and uh, it's gotta be great that you're able to do this, like you know, for a living, so to say, and not have to get a day I job. Am,
3: yeah, I am. I am so. I am so blessed that I've that I've been able to to do this for as long as I've done it, and still continue to do it. Um, I, and I owe that to the fans because the fans have made it possible for me to to continue doing something that I love. Um, having said that, you know, when I was when I was growing up back east, I actually had real jobs too. I mean, I've been very fortunate that that for most of my life, um, and ever since you know I started playing professionally, this is what I've done. But I did roofing. Okay, I was on a hot crew uh, mopping uh, mopping tar on roofs. Uh, yeah. So I know the value of the dollar, and I know and I know how hard it is to earn. And a lot of times when I'm sitting up on that stage, you know, I, I, not only am I so thankful that I'm up there playing, but I'm also very appreciative that the people that are out there in the audience, uh, you know, most of them, if not all of them, have to go out and work. And a lot of them do, you know, the type of jobs that are, that are really difficult to do. So I take it very seriously. If they, if they paid, you know, however much they paid to come see a show, they deserve the greatest show. And that was always the attitude in Quiet Riot.
4: You guys, you guys always put on an amazing show. I mean, i actually been into Choir Riot since they put out the Magic Wand single back in the mid-'70s. Mm-hmm. I got it here in, in a store in Brooklyn, and it's and mm-hmm. been like 99 cents. And, that, and you, know, uh, you know, you know, back then, there's no internet. There's no way of finding out about bands. You either saw the name of the store that, that grabbed your attention or an album cover, and that's all you knew because there weren't even really magazines back then outside of Hit Parade and Cream, and they very rarely featured the upcoming bands. It was always like, you know, the bigger bands at the time. So you really had to like do your homework back then, and it was like hit or miss. And I remember being Randy in the band, and then we went to Ozzy, brought a lot of attention back to Quiet to Ride again, which finally brought you guys to the light again, and that really, you know, you took off from there.
3: Well, actually, uh, well, first of all, you're absolutely right about the magazine situation and no internet back then. And Kevin and I, um, you know, one thing, or two things that we really, really shared uh, equally, one was our love of comedy, and the other one was our love of music, but it was really funny because when I first met Kevin, uh, we had had a similar conversation and both he and I separately, we didn't know each other at the time, uh, years earlier, we both had, uh, subscriptions to Melody Maker, uh, the big music newspaper yeah. in England. And, and that's the only way you can get information, especially about all those English bands we love. So I, I know what you're talking about. Now with regards to, to Randy and the whole Quiet Ride situation, it's, it's actually in reverse because when Randy joined Ozzy, um, that version of of Quiet Ride, the Quiet ride they had Kevin Dubrow and Drew Forsyth Kelly Garney, who was later replaced by Rudy Sarzo and obviously the great Randy Rhodes. Yeah um, they they really garnered no attention. They were they were a local LA band that were known in the LA area and pretty much nowhere else at the time. And they had only released two records that were released only in Japan.
5: Yeah. So when
3: he joined Ozzy, the really the, the emphasis wasn't on Quiet Riot because it would have been, for all intents and purposes, um, in in a much broader sense, he was just coming from a local band because that 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 version of Quiet Riot really had made no noise whatsoever. It wasn't until until um, we did the mental health record, that Quiet Riot actually became a known entity uh, worldwide. So it's, a, it's actually, you know, uh, then all of a sudden there was more more emphasis on Randy Rose's participation in the first version of Quiet Riot. So it got was it. actually, you know, a little reversed.
4: Yeah, I got it, got it there. And but you guys had it. It was a, it had to be an amazing time back then. One of the biggest albums in the world. You guys knocked Michael Jackson, The Police off the charts, which was you know, back then, it didn't, it didn't get any bigger than those guys. So it had to be a great feeling, especially for a bunch of young guys. Who str- I mean, it wasn't like it was your first. You guys put your time in. You struggle for a long time. People don't realize that before that happened. It wasn't like it just was an overnight sensation. You guys all, you probably went out to California with $10 in your pocket back then, hoping to make it.
3: Yeah, well, you know, the the thing that's fascinating about the story is that in, in 1980. Um, in, in the band Dubrow, because after Randy left to join Ozzy Osbourne and then uh, Rudy Tarso followed suit, um, <clears throat> there was no choir riot um, uh, in any way, shape, or form. And, and Kevin put his own band together uh, and called it Dubrow so that he could really pick and choose who he wanted to work with. Uh, and besides Kevin, I was, the, I was the one person that was in the band uh, longer than anybody else was in that version of Dubro. It was uh, a revolving door of, of people uh, playing in the band. Um, Chuck Wright was in it at one point. Rudy was in it at one point. There were uh, a dozen different bass players and guitars that came through the band. But even as early as 1980, we were already playing um, some of the songs that ended up on both Mental Health and Condition Critical. Uh, in eighty one is when we went into the studio, the record plant on our own and recorded the demos, which eventually helped get us the deal with uh, with CBS. So it was an ongoing process. But even by the time the the records uh, the mental health records started selling very well. Uh, and even the day that uh, we found out that the following week it was going to be number one in Billboard, we were an opening act. We were opening up for for Black Sabbath uh, when they were supporting their born again tour. So for us, it was almost business as usual. It was, I mean, we were thrilled that the record was selling as well as it was selling, and we were incredibly grateful that we were uh, that we were on these major tours. But you know, we were we were an opening act. We were just it was business as usual. We were going up there and playing our shows to the best of our abilities and having a great time. It wasn't until much later that you know it all started to sink in.
4: I'm sure. You know, you were just talking about Condition Critical, and I was playing the song Condition Critical the other day. I-, I couldn't help but think, what a, what a! It's an amazing song, but what a big bass drum sound you had. The whole drumming on that song was just like phenomenal. It was so heavy. I mean, it brought back John Bonham to me when I heard that song. Every time I hear your drumming on there, it's just, I think it's one of your best drum sounds on any Quiet Riot song ever.
3: Oh, thank you. You know, it, it's really funny because how that song came about. Um, is we were playing a venue called <clears throat> uh, Soldiers and Sailors, and, and every time I sat down behind the kit uh, to warm up or a sound check, I would play that particular pattern at that particular speed, and, and, and Kevin uh, or that particular tempo, rather. And Kevin really loved it, and he said, you know, we should write a song um, based on that drum groove, which is exactly uh, what we did. The, uh, uh, an interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people know is when we released Condition Critical, um, Kevin and I were really adamant about having condition, the song Condition Critical be the first single, uh, not Mama, We're All Crazy Now. But, yeah. of course, we had no control in the situation, and, and both the producer and the label uh, wanted Mama, We're All Crazy Now, to try to monopolize some the success of Come off Feel the Noise. But yeah. we wanted Condition Critical, but you know, the consensus from everybody outside of the band was that it was too long, it was too, uh, too slow, and too heavy. Uh, but I wish we would have been able to, uh, to have released that as a single.
4: Yeah, that would have been great, because it was so different than anything you had, you had done before, and even and even after that. And it, it was just an amazing song. It's just, it just takes you to another place, that song. And I, I wish they would have done that, but it was still a great record start to finish. And look, how many guys you know, get to wear a dress and a leopard skin shirt for
3: a video? Ah, uh, yeah. It wasn't just the dress; it was a cheerleader outfit, and I
5: looked—I
3: uh, looked like <laughs> <laughs> I looked like an Italian hooker. Okay.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Party uh, all night.
4: Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I love that. That was good. That was some good stuff. But I'm looking. For, but going even before Quiet Right, what was the? What was the? Did you have any experience before that where you really got to go out and play some bigger shows? I know you did a little thing with—I um, think with Robert Fleischmann played with for a little while back then too,
3: before Quiet Right. While wow, you did your research, yeah, Robert um, Robert Fleischman had been in uh, in Journey pre um, Steve Perry, and he actually wrote "Wheel in the Sky" and I think a couple of other songs for Journey. Um, and he did a solo record that I didn't play on. He got all all uh, studio players of the time, and uh, and the record was called Perfect Stranger. He did it for Arista, and he was managed by Barry Fay. <clears throat> and that's when I met Barry, and this was you know like in the uh, late '70s. But they put a band together to, to tour, um, and we actually opened up for Van Halen for, uh, I think eight weeks, uh, and I was the touring drummer in that band. So I really had that, that level of touring experience because, I mean, we're talking opening up for Van Halen. So it, it was a major yeah. tour, and, and I was doing that well before, well before Quiet Riot. But I had also done, uh, a number of recordings before I was actually in the studio with Quiet Riot. I'm the drummer on Billy Idol's Money Money. Uh, and that was done. That was done before. Um, before we recorded the metal health record, uh, I had also played uh, drums on a Hughes Thrall record with Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple and Pat Thrall, uh from Pat Travers. So, uh, and also I had done a record in Germany with Tony Carey, the keyboard player for um, Rainbow, who Rainbow, had just yeah. left. Yeah, he had just left the band. So I did his first solo record. So I had already had major tour experience and recording experience under my belt. Before I went into the studio with uh, with Quiet Riot.
4: Yeah, I, the Tony. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Tony Carey, and I like this Planet Peace stuff when he did that. Also, and uh, but you also recorded with Actor, didn't you? With who? The band Actor.
3: Um, I think they were in I'm Germany.
4: or not... out of Germany at the time that band.
3: Well, here's the thing: when I was in Germany doing Tony Carey's record, it was like a factory. I was hired. Um, to go there and play for a month and I was essentially a contract um, okay. uh, studio player and while I was there they had uh, I, we did it at a studio in Frankfurt called Hotline Studios and they had Studio A B and C and the Germans are very efficient at how they work so I'd go into the studio at, at 10 o'clock in the morning and work in Studio A from 10 till noon then we would break for lunch and then they put me in Studio B from 1 to 5, then I'd have dinner, and then from 6 p.m. until whatever time, you know, midnight, 1, 2 in the morning, I was in Studio uh, in studio C with Tony Carey. Um, by my estimation, besides doing Tony's record, I think I played on 22 different tracks um, wow. for musicians that were German, French, English, you know, across the board. So yeah. what I ended up on is amazing. I do know that some of my drum tracks did end up on the Planet P Records, although I'm not credited on it.
4: Okay. Uh, that was that was the same thing with uh, with Blackie Lewis, and then he had God came out, <laughs> the second one. Uh, he took it in. I know you, know you did a lot of great recordings of Wasp back in the 90s. Blackie, i think could probably be a difficult person to work with.
3: Well, you know, that last record I did, uh, I did for Watch, The Neon God, I was credited on, on Part 1 um, yeah. because this is when Blackie wanted me to tour, um, especially when he found out that at that period of time, Choir Ride was on hiatus. And, and uh, I, I chose not to for, for no other reason than I had some other things that I wanted to do. Um, so when The Neon God Part 2 came out, he, uh, he didn't credit me on the record. Um, which was which was unfair, but that's okay. If you listen to it, you know I'm on it, so it's okay. I don't have a problem with it, and I love Blackie. I think he's great.
4: Yeah, Blackie's. Uh, you know, he's a character. So, uh, but you, you've worked with a lot of them on show sure, over the years, so he's just one more notch in the belt, I guess.
3: Well, I never look at it as one more notch in the belt. Every single recording I do, every single band that I play with, every single time I, I step on stage, it's important to me, um, and I always try to do the best. The best job I possibly can, so it's never like you know, it's never like I'm going to treat this one um, with with less attention than something else because at the end of the day, you know, for better or for worse, whatever it is that I do, and especially on recordings, is there forever. So um, yeah. I take it, I take that aspect. I don't take myself seriously, but I take music and my and my playing very seriously.
4: I understand that. Was there ever is it has there been any player musician that you you heard you're going to have the opportunity to work with? And then you say, I can't wait. You know, I've always dreamed of playing with this person. Then when it happened, you're like, oh, Okay, well, <laughs> it wasn't what I thought it was going to be.
3: Um, no, actually, no. I think, I think that uh, you know, listen, like anything else in life, any any experience you have is going to have high points, low points, and uh, and then some some points that are almost uh, almost irrelevant. But um, no, that's never been the case. I mean, I've worked with a lot of really interesting personalities and. And you basically have to be able to separate the music from from the individual. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, it becomes it becomes um, it becomes a little too personal, uh, and that's where you have problems. But no, I've I've, I've enjoyed my experience, even the bad ones. Uh, I've enjoyed my experience with uh, with every musician I've worked with because you always learn something from it.
4: Yeah, that's true. Well, for for the low points, you can put that colon into the show today. <laughs> it's one of them. You can put that down. <laughs>
3: No, no! What are you kidding? <laughs> I am so I am so grateful that you wanted to do this interview, and especially uh, I've been a fan since I'm so fan. long,
4: I, I couldn't wait to talk to you. A, and another thing, you opened up for David Bowie in Fort Lauderdale many many years ago. That must have been something.
3: Yeah, I was still in high school, and that's uh, uh, and I was working uh, after school at a record store. Um, and actually, that that David Bowie show was at a venue called Pirate's World in in Florida. Uh, in Dania, which is between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and Pirate's World was an amusement park, and you didn't play in the amusement park. What they did is they would close off the parking lot, and then they had this you know, big, huge outdoor stage, and they bring in a real sound system, and that's where those concerts were. Um, and uh, and I was uh, I was in a band that opened up for David Bowie, and that was the show that Rudy Sarzo and his brother Robert were both out in the audience. I didn't know them at the time, and the following week, um, that's how I met Rudy because he had seen me play at that show and he came up to me uh, at a club in uh, in Fort Lauderdale and that's what started uh, our time clock. So Rudy and I share an awful lot of history.
4: Yeah, it's amazing how, how all your lives kind of intersect at one point or another and they wind, you just wind up in a, you know at one point in the same place together. It's funny because that was years and years before quite right, and it's just incredible how people you've met over the years, somehow you wind up being... You know, working with again later on, and, and that Rudy was one of them, I guess.
3: Absolutely, uh, you know, he and I shared a long history because we played in a couple of local bands in in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and then we played in a band out in the Midwest in the Chicago area that you know toured everywhere in the Midwest, uh, and then we both ended up in California. I left Chicago first and came out to L.A., and then he left uh, he left Chicago and and came out to L.A., and then we were. In a couple of bands out here in California before he joined the first version of Quiet Riot, and uh, and I went on to do everything else. So mm-hmm. we have a lot a lot of history, and we still try to get together about once a month and have coffee and uh, and and talk about the uh, and talk about our uh, our collective uh, lives and uh, and our musical history. He's a great yes. guy and a great bass player. I mean, it's uh, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to work with him um, for so many years.
4: Yeah, he is. I, I spoke with Rudy a while ago. He is. He's a really good guy. And you know, I was I was I want to get quite right with the last studio record, Rehab. I thought that was one of the band's better records, especially towards you know at the end. That I, you had a lot of different people. And you actually had Glenn. He was working with you on that record. And in, like you said earlier, he worked with Glenn. Hughes in the beginning of your career too.
3: Yeah. Um. The the Rehab record um, that happened at a point in time. You know, Kevin and I had a very definite idea of the songs we wanted to write and the songs we wanted to record. Um, and Tony Franklin, who's, who's a dear friend and a, an unbelievable bass player, um, I asked him to come in and uh, and do that record. You know, I was a huge um, fan of the firm, and I'm a fan of Tony's. And uh, Tony and I have done probably about a dozen records together over the years, so... Um, I had him come in and do the bass, and then uh, there's a guitarist named Neil Citron, who is unbelievably talented guitarist, but he's also a wonderful uh, engineer, and so we did the record with that lineup, and we asked Glenn Hughes, when, when um, during the first few months that I met Kevin, um, we started talking about a bunch of different English bands that we really, really liked, and one of them was Spooky Tooth, and when... He brought up Spooky Tooth. I said, oh, Evil Woman, what a great song. And then he told me how much he loved the song. And, you know, we're talking back 1980. We, we said that, you know, hopefully someday we get to record it. And I'm grateful that we actually did have the opportunity to record Evil Woman on what ended up being um, Kevin's final Quiet uh, Riot record. And, yeah. uh, and we brought Glenn Hughes in to not only sing Co-Lead with Kevin, but he also played bass on that track.
4: Wow. Yeah, and Tony, yeah Tony played on that. And you wrote, you've been working with Tony again the last few years uh, in your new band. Uh with Tony? Uh Tony Franklin,
3: huh? Oh Tony Franklin. Yeah. Yeah, I've worked with him on, on, on so many on so many different recordings and we actually um uh, the first time I recorded with Tony was on the first Gary Hoey record, uh, Animal Instinct. We did that record and we actually did some touring dates together with Gary opening up for Joe Satriani. So, you know, Tony and I have a have a, a lot of history together now too. And uh,
4: Tony's a freak show also, right?
3: I'm sorry?
4: Is Tony a freak show with you?
3: Uh, I brought him in to uh to do uh to do the bass tracks on that record, yeah.
4: okay. Are you're still gonna be doing work with them? Uh
3: no, I uh even before even before the the, the record came out there were already problems uh with, with that lineup. Um so um I have no association whatsoever with uh with that.
4: That much. And I know not long ago you actually hooked up with uh, Craig Ruba for a little bit from Elf and Rainbow. Uh what is they needing? You were doing some shows with them too.
3: Actually, that never happened. It was uh, it was poorly organized. Uh, oh, okay. and, and Craig Craig's a great guy, but he involved himself with some business people that that were less than it should have been. Uh, and uh, and both myself and Craig Goldie bowed, bowed out of that situation because it really it really was not being uh, you know Craig's Craig's motives and his heart were in the right place, uh, but everything else that was happening around him was not. So we bowed out of it.
4: Okay, I don't blame you. So what's cooking right now after the documentary music-wise? You got anything that you're going to be working on soon?
3: Well, the documentary is is my complete and total focus right now. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners are aware of not, but we're making this documentary, um, and uh, and we're trying to get it funded because I've put a, a good deal of my own money and obviously a lot of time and energy and all the material that I own to make this documentary, but... It's a very, very costly proposition. And while um, I could have gone the corporate route and gotten that kind of backing, they would have wanted me to, uh, to make a documentary that it would have been less than what I believe the fans would want to see. So um, we hooked up with this uh, website called kickstarter.com, K-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.com. And if you go to that website, And uh, you click the website, and you go into the search function, and you put in Choir Riot. It'll take you to a picture of Choir Riot, and you click that icon, and it'll take you to the project homepage. And that tells you um, everything you need to know about what we're trying to do. First of all, there's a a clip there that you can watch that uh, gives you an indication of some of the footage that we have. And there's also some text there that tells you uh, about the documentary itself and some pictures and we're trying to raise um, uh, a minimum $20,000 goal uh, to do it this way. And I wanted to go this route because I wanted to find out if the fans are really interested in acquiring right. a documentary, but I also want them to be proactive by contributing um, to, to make the documentary a reality. And the way Kickstarter.com um, works for our project is – there's a, there's a little green box that says back this project, and if you click that, it takes you to the page that tells you how you do it. Now, we've set up um, funding where you can back the project for as little as $10, and then it goes increments up from that. And each package has um, has a number of items that I will get to the backers if we are successful in the funding of the project. Um, and two things that are that are really fantastic about the Kickstarter.com system. Number one is if you pledge uh, uh, whatever dollar amount you pledge, no funds are taken out of a person's credit card or held at all. That will only happen if we meet our minimum goal, and and it's all done through Amazon.com payments. So it's all you know completely and totally secure. Your information yeah. never goes anywhere. But if it doesn't get funded, no, no money is uh, is exchanged, so there's there's no loss there. Um, and where we're at right now, we've got 15 days to go, so just about two weeks to go um, to get this funded. And right now we're at nine thousand five hundred and twenty dollars, and we've got to reach a minimum goal of twenty thousand. The caveat there is that if by the time the clock runs out, which is on September second, and we don't meet the minimum uh, goal, then the whole project goes away. No funds are no funds are exchanged, um, but we don't get funded, and and that puts you know a really dark cloud over the project.
5: Sure. So I'm
3: really asking the fans to see if they uh, if they want to literally belly up to the bar and uh, and buy a drink and make this happen. The the other thing I like about the Kickstarter.com system is that if you become a backer, you can see a lot of clips that I've uploaded. Um, onto the site. And these are all clips from my archives. They're raw and unedited, things that no one has ever seen before and only the backers can see. And I uploaded a track this morning before uh, before I called you. And uh, we're well over an hour's worth of material already, probably close to an hour and a half worth of material already right. on the site that only backers can see. And because we have so much material, it's hard to say what's going to make it into the final cut of the documentary. So these people who are back in the project, who I'm very grateful to, may be seeing footage that no one else will ever see. And if the project does not get funded in the next two weeks, there's the real likelihood that uh, that, that documentary will go away and all my footage uh, will go back into, into the safe and the archives.
4: Well, that's something we don't want to happen. Uh, Frankie, we're running out of time. Before I let you go, everybody's got to go to kickstarter.com. As soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm going to go on and make a donation. And I'm going to put oh, all so the links up on the site uh, that I have. Uh, you know, we're pre-recording this right now, uh, but it's going to air on the, on the Sunday show live next week. And I'm going to keep pushing this for the next 15 days of all the shows and try to get you as much as we can. And I'm going to put up all the links on my site because it's going to be great to see this, and we don't want it to come this far to fall apart. So whoever's listening now, donate, you know, donate whatever you can just to help out. And I'm going to put the links up for everybody else that can get it online for me off my websites.
3: Mike, I truly, truly appreciate your help and support, and it's really been a pleasure speaking with you, especially somebody that knows uh, so, much, uh, so much music history, so much Choir Ride history, and I'm I'm actually very flattered you know so much of my own personal musical history, so I thank you for that.
4: I thank you, Frankie, for all these years of great music, and I can't wait for the years to come to get even more out of you. I've been a big fan since the beginning, and I'm going to keep being by you all this time.
3: Well, let's see what happens in, in, in the future of Choir Ride, my friend. I truly appreciate that.
4: You got it, buddy. Frankie, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
3: Take care, my friend. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
4: All right, that was an interview I did last week with Frankie Benalli from Choir Ride. The band is back together these days, and that's good to know. Tommy, you still there? Oh,
7: yeah, yeah.
4: All right, I got somebody else on the line from Brooklyn. It's got to be 718. Who's there, 718?
7: Hi, Mike. It's Claire. How are you?
4: Hi, Claire. How are you doing?
7: Hey, I'm you? okay. I'm okay. Hi, Tommy. How are you? Hey, baby. How's it doing?
2: I'm okay, I'm okay. Uh, Alex, I spoke to Alex earlier. He told me you're celebrating your two-year anniversary on the air, so I wanted to say congratulations.
4: Oh, we sure are. I apologize for calling you out from Brooklyn. I know you're a Queens girl.
2: That's quite all right.
4: Brooklyn is fine. <laughs> well, Queens is the boring borough. That's all right. We got we got Reese in the house, so Reese is from Brooklyn, so we're okay. It's uh, <laughs> <that's> okay. <laughs> so how have you been? We're doing good, honey. How about you?
2: I'm okay. I'm doing okay.
4: Oh, doing I'm all glad. right. That's good.
2: But I miss talking to everyone. And you know, when Alex told me about your anniversary, I said, I have to come on and say what a great show you have. And you have awesome interviews. I see you just uh, interviewed Frankie. Sure
4: oh,
5: it's, good. Nice to,
2: it's nice the Quiet Riots getting back together.
4: Definitely. You know, anytime I can talk to a fellow Brooklynite, uh, an Italian guy from Brooklyn, all less, uh, I feel good.
2: It doesn't make my accent uh, yeah. feel
4: so out of place.
2: Yeah, uh, no, but I'm I'm really glad to hear that. You know, and I, I just caught the last end of it because I still don't have the computer, unfortunately. But, you know, I just did want to say hi to you and Tommy. Thank you. And say what a great show you have.
7: Yeah. You and uh, send you uh, some stuff. we got to send you some stuff. Oh, that's sweet. We have a bunch of promo stuff that we've been uh, giving out to calls uh, this week, so... Uh, Oh, that's yeah. really
4: sweet.
2: Email that's Mikey
7: Rogers, really and he'll send you out some stuff. Oh,
4: thank She just you. told you computer's down. Yeah. Oh,
7: <laughs> uh, well, maybe she's got email at work. I don't know. She how
4: much he pays attention. <laughs> but we will talk again uh, soon, Clay. I appreciate you calling in tonight, honey.
2: Yeah, and it was great talking to you, and I will uh, hopefully I'll be able to tune into the show again soon because I miss you guys. But you have such an awesome show. Thank you.
8: The, thank you, the you very the most, much.
2: Well, the most incredible interviews, and you're so relaxed. That's what really gets me more than anything else, how you just handle it just so easily. I mean, you talk to people that really are our idols, and you handle it so well. Me, Thank I don't you. know if I could do that.
4: But Thank you. you very much. You're too kind.
2: But you're awesome,
4: and uh-huh. it was
2: great talking to you.
4: You too, Claire.
2: Bye, Tommy. It was Take great care, talking honey. to you too. Talk to you
4: soon. Keep
2: the metal alive. That's right. That's All right. right. Bye-bye. Take Bye-bye now.
4: Uh, thank you, Claire, for calling uh, in. Nice you. And uh, you know what? Since we got Reese in the chat room tonight, I about we'd do a little Raven. All right. And the good Raven with Joe Hasselman on drums in the line of fire. As matter of fact, John Gallagher was our guest last year in the one-year anniversary show.
5: Oh, that's so true, how
4: man. apropos is that, huh? You like that word, huh? Ooh,
7: apropos.
5: Yeah.
4: Well, we only got five minutes left in the show, and I want to thank uh, everybody who keeps listening week after week. I don't know who you are, why you do it, but thank you. I appreciate it. I work hard on this show. And, Tommy, we have a good time every week hanging out and DSing. Yeah. So, so it's always fun, and I want to thank everybody. Now, let me see. This Thursday on the Metal Matinee at 1 o'clock... Get your passport, it's the Wide World of Metal, we're heading to Italy. So we'll have an uh, Italian medal on next Thursday's show. All right. And next metal Sunday night...
7: Mutzarel, let's call.
4: That, that's right, a little Buffalo Mozzarella next week.
5: <laughs> this
4: week. And, and Sunday night, we have Greg Gruber from uh, Elf and Rainbow and uh, Eden calling in. Frankie Benalli was talking about him before. And uh, Michael Kiska, if I'm, saying it, pronounce, if I'm pronouncing it right in German, the original singer from Halloween. So... Big show next Sunday, too. We're closing out the month of uh, September in style, huh?
7: Yeah, in style.
4: All right. Well, I want to thank everybody. I'm going to get one more song on before we close things out. I really appreciate it. Check out castero the band, from our Sunday Night Spotlight on the website. And on the block spot, I have the link to the page up. I want to thank Frankie Benalli and Gene Hoglin for calling in tonight. Everybody for hanging out in the chat room. How about we close with a little priest? We always play the unknown and obscure stuff, but how about we uh, you go a little A-class today, huh? Sounds good. There you go. A little tyrant to close things out. Thank you, everybody. Uh-huh. Excellent. Have a great Thank week. You. Take care, T. All
7: right, brother. Good night. <laughs>
4: That's how we close out the TM anniversary show with some Judas Priest. Now we have the world's most famous redneck on the line, Ryan. What's going on, Ryan? A little
7: bonus coverage for those uh, who listen to
0: the. That's uh, right,
4: a, a little after show bonus. Yeah, and
0: once again. Hi y'all. How y'all doing tonight? I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fantastic here on this on this here uh, radio program. All right. <laughs> Howdy! Howdy! Well, we sure are glad you can make that to see us tonight. <laughs> All right, I have a song to commemorate your two-year anniversary. All right. So, All right. both
2: of you, happy,
0: happy two years to the both of you. Evening, <laughs> radio. Uh, uh,
5: yeah.
0: And here's the little song that I wrote for it. Don't hang up on me. This I is uh, it's uh, honestly a real song. Okay. Well, here we go. Okay. And if I pronounce your name wrong, I apologize. This is just what I found on Facebook. Mike <laughs> Cola and Tommy Falanga, they're a winning metal team, don't you see? Two years ago, they started their own show called the Heavy Metal Mayhem with Big Cheese. This country sure as hell going down the drain. <laughs> you know what I mean? you know who to blame but when you're looking for a good show go no further than block talk radio it's the deal for each radio show i mean the warrior rock radio show i mean the ryan Harmon show i mean this friday in portsmouth arkansas at 7:30 for free with paid admission to the fair it's the heavy metal mayhem radio show
4: wow thank you very much that's the offspring that Minnie Pearl never talks about. Woo! Horns
6: up, brother. <laughs> <laughs>
4: right now, the Grand Lottery's on fire. <laughs> <laughs>
7: uh, that
0: was good.
4: Ryan, thank you very much. That was hysterical, like always.
7: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: God bless, God bless y'all. Have, have a happy anniversary celebration. Uh, drink a lot.
4: I will. You got it, Ryan. Yeah. I'll catch you on your show right after this. Take care, buddy.
8: All right. Take care, man. All right. I'll talk to you.
4: <laughs> that kid's too much. He's
7: amazing. It's amazing. you going to go over there for a couple
4: of minutes? Yeah, I'm going to go for a little bit now as I type gonna... up some stuff. I have and I'm going to go Oh, God. Time. That kid makes me laugh. He
7: is a person, man. Oh, he's very hysterical, talented. that guy. He's very talented.
4: Without a doubt. He probably just said that and came up that a minute ago, too. Yeah,
5: He's amazing.
4: He's good. Oh, my God. All right, well, we're getting cut off now. I can see the, the screen went black, so uh, it's just you and I. All right, but then. Thank I'll you, buddy. Get. I'll talk Have to you later it, on first. this week. All All right. Right. You got it. You too. I'll see you later. <laughs> Take care.